glad to have all of you here with us today. If you are a guest with us, we're specifically glad that you've chosen to worship with us uh, this morning. And then we want to take time now just to prepare our hearts to receive God's uh, word as we prepare to listen to his word preached. If you would, just where you're at, you can sit, you can kneel, you can continue to stand, whatever you choose to do. We're going to take time to pray for our offering, but I just prepare our hearts to receive God's word today. So if you would, just kind of go ahead and have a seat. And let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we thank you for this time that we are able to gather together as a church. And in a world with so many distractions and uh, pulling us in this direction and that direction, it can be um, real easy kind of lose focus. When we gather in on a, on a raining kind of Sunday morning, we do thank you for the rain. We know it is much needed. But we also know that that can bring us into a pattern of comfort on a Sunday morning where we just kind of get a little drowsy. And Lord, I, I pray that uh, right now in this time, our, our minds and our hearts will be attuned and affixed to what you'd have us to, to hear today. We do pray for our offering. We pray that you will use... Um, Use the offering, use the gifts, use our resources for your glory. Lord, help us to give out of of the abundance of the grace that you have uh, lavished upon us. Not out of a sense of obligation, but of of gratitude. Lord, again, as we now open up your word, I pray that uh, you will help us to see clearly, to hear and to understand, and to make much of your son, Jesus. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you all are doing well. Hopefully you've had a good week. You've, uh, this afternoon will be the ample time for a good Sunday afternoon nap. I would encourage that or hope it would not be right now, um, though it would not be the first time in my pastoral uh, life that that has ever been the case. But uh, I remember growing up uh, as a child, we would take... Uh, a field trip um, when I was in school, we went down to Mammoth Cave. And Mammoth Cave, a large cave there in central Kentucky. And when we went down there on, on the field trip, you get down into the depths of the cave. And when you're down there, they get to a spot in the tour where they, they turn out all the lights. And have you ever been in a cave when they turn out all the lights? Like, it's pitch black, right? Like, you, I mean, you literally cannot see your hand in front of your face. So imagine that with um, a room full of like fifth graders <laughs> and they're telling you like don't laugh and don't poke one another. What do you do? You laugh and you poke one another and you're like you have fun in that moment like ha and like nobody can see me and you know and literally they can't. They cannot see you uh, in that moment. But in all seriousness, if we can't see or at least see clearly. What, what does that do? What, what happens in that moment? There's confusion, isn't there? There's confusion. There's a lack of understanding. There's an inability to describe what's right before our eyes. Like our hand is in front of your face and you cannot describe it. Somebody, fifth grader, right in front of your face making all kinds of crazy faces and you cannot see it. You can just smell their breath and that's it. But that's all. You have an inability to see right before what's before your eyes. That's what we see in the text today. 
Maybe not the bad breath part, but the inability to see part is what we see. So go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Mark chapter 8. We're picking up in verse 11 today, kind of continuing our journey through Mark's gospel. Verse 11, the Pharisees came and began to argue with him, seeking from him a sign from heaven to test him. And he sighed deeply in his spirit and said, why does this generation seek a sign? Truly, I say to you, no sign will be given to this generation. And he left them, got into the boat again, and went to the other side. Now they had forgotten to bring bread, and they had only one loaf with them in the boat. And he cautioned them, saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. And they began discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. And Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why are you discussing the fact that you have no bread? Do you not yet perceive or understand? Are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? Having ears, do you not hear? And do you not remember? When I, when I broke the five loaves for the 5,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? They said to him, Twelve. And the seven for the 4,000, how many baskets full of broken pieces did you take up? And they said to him, seven. And he said to them, do you not yet understand? And they came to Bethsaida. And some people brought to him a blind man and begged him to touch him. And he, he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of the village. And when he had spit on his eyes and laid hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see people, but they, they look like trees walking. Then Jesus laid his hands on his eyes again, and he opened his eyes. His sight was restored, and he saw everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, do not even enter the village. So point one from all these accounts, we'll just kind of pause there for now. The point number one that we see is we must see Jesus as the Christ. This is what we, we must see Jesus as the Christ. This is what we have here in these three accounts is really an emphasis on an inability to see or to see clearly. And it's starting right here with the religious leaders as we look at. The religious leaders can't see Jesus for, for who he is. And what do they do? They can't see Jesus for who he is. So what do they do? They come seeking a sign. They want Jesus to perform a sign in the heavens. And a popular Jewish superstition in this period of time believed that the demons could then mimic the miracles, uh, the earthly miracles that were done. So you think about that in terms of Pharaoh's magicians. You remember Pharaoh's magicians? And they would come, and Moses said, uh, threw his staff down, threw his rod down, it turns into a snake. And then Pharaoh's magicians come, and they mimic what's there. Well, they're taking this superstition of believing that, that the demons could mimic the earthly miracles, but only God could do wonders in the sky. Only God could do wonders in the heavens. So remember, these religious leaders here, they're not denying the miracle working power of Jesus. They're just attributing it to who? To Satan. That they've said is, okay, we understand you're doing these miracles, Jesus, but that's because you're possessed by a demon. That's what they're believing in regards to Jesus and his identity. So now they've come and they're asking him to perform a sign. They want him to do something in the heavens. Prove yourself. And what they're really trying to do here is they're trying to trap him. And how does Jesus respond? Does he fall for the trap? No. What does he do? He says to them, no sign will be given to this generation. 
Actually, Matthew then adds, he says, no sign will be given to this generation except the sign of Jonah. Now, pause for a minute and we think, well, what is the sign of Jonah? And you think, how many nights, how many days and nights was Jonah in the belly of the fish? Three, right? And how many was Jesus in the heart of the earth in the grave? Three. So what we have here, the only sign that matters that Jesus is saying here, the only sign that matters is the one that he gives in his resurrection. That's the sign of Jonah. If one sees evidence of an empty tomb, one sees all the evidence, either then or now, that's laid forth, that Jesus literally rose from the dead and still refuses to believe, there's no amount of signs, there's no amount of evidence that will ever cause them to believe in Jesus. There's not. Jesus could, could arrange all the stars, and basically that's what he's want, they're wanting him to do, to arrange all the stars in the sky to say, believe in me. And there would still not be enough evidence to, for these unbelieving hearts to believe in Jesus. They wouldn't see him. Like, to the case in point, Jesus could take the world, turn it upside down, shake it like a snow globe, and they're still going to be there and think, there's natural explanation for that. I mean, that, that's how blinded they are to the truth. And that's why Jesus refuses their request. He's like, I'm not going to give you a sign other than the sign of Jonah. Because even if he did, they're not going to believe him. Why? Because they're spiritually blind. They cannot see what's right in front of their face. They can't see it. Then we come to the story of the disciples. They don't see Jesus for who he is either. Here we have Jesus cautioning the 12 disciples. He's teaching them in the boat. He's saying, watch out. Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the leaven of Herod. Now, what he's doing here is he's using leaven here, yeast, as a means to illustrate influence, both positive and negative. Why? Because a small amount of yeast can permeate a relatively large amount of dough and then cause it to rise. Now, I'm going to be honest with you for a moment on this. Is I read that. Like, I don't know squat about working with yeast, but it makes for a really good illustration, and Jesus knows what he's talking about. I just don't work with dough and do all that. So, but I'm reading this, and like, okay, that's a good illustration here, and it's a fitting illustration for positive and negative spiritual influence. Because what is he saying? Jesus is saying, don't let the Pharisees influence you with doctrinal errors. Don't let the Pharisees influence you with legalism and hypocrisy and religiosity, looking like, hey, I'm a really good Christian. I'm doing all the right things, but your heart's being defiled. Don't let the Pharisees influence you that way. Don't let the Herodians influence you with their depraved behavior stemming from the Roman world. Don't. That influence, even a small amount of influence, can rise up quickly and it can destroy you and destroy your witness. And this is what he's teaching the disciples in the boat. You can, tense, you can sense the, the seriousness of what Jesus is saying here. But while Jesus is giving this important teaching, how do the disciples respond? Look at, the, look at that. They're discussing with one another the fact that they had no bread. <laughs> 
Jesus is sitting here teaching important truth, and they're discussing the fact that they're hungry, right? You ever been guilty of that stomach rolling in the service, pastor saying something that you know is important, you know you should be listening to, but all that you're focused on is your stomach? Ding, 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 ding. That's where they're at right here, and now they're focusing. We only have one loaf of bread in the boat, now, that right there should be sending off warning signals to us because they have one loaf of bread and, and Jesus is in the boat with you. Is that not enough right now? But how does Jesus then respond to them? Probably a whole lot nicer than I think this is coming across or how I would, but he says, do you not perceive or understand? Or are your hearts hardened? Having eyes, do you not see? He's like, were you there for the feeding of the 5,000? Were you there for the feeding of the 4,000? Yeah, how many leftovers were there? <laughs> Baskets full? How many? Uh, 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 12 and 7. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Do you not yet understand, disciples? Do you not yet? Are, how blind are you? I'm trying to teach you something here, Jesus is saying. And you're worried because you don't think you have enough food with one loaf of bread in the boat. <laughs> and look what I've done with the 5,000 and the 4,000. The people ate and they were satisfied. How come you can't see this? How come? So we see the disciples don't see Jesus for who he really is either. And then we come to this story of a blind man who gradually sees Jesus. So coming to Bethsaida, they arrive there, and some people, they come to Jesus, and they bring him a blind man, and they're begging Jesus to touch him. Please, touch him, healing. And, and this is the point where we're just like, thank you, Mark. Knowing this is under the divine inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we're like, thank you, Mark. This is the most fitting, perfect place for the story of a blind man, right? Because we've just seen an account of a blind, blind religious leaders. We've got blind disciples here. And now we're coming to this man. And what does Jesus do? He leads him out of the village. He spits in his eyes. And I'm just going to say, that's gross. I don't care if it is coming from Jesus. He spits in his eyes, laid his hands on him, and asked him, do you see anything? Do you see anything? And how does this man respond? He says, I see men. But they look like trees walking. Now I'm stopping in there and I'm thinking, well, how does he know what trees look like if he's blind, you know? And, but maybe he wasn't blind from birth. We don't know. But that's where my brain goes. And I spent like way too much time thinking about that this week. But what can this man now do? He can see. He can now see. A blind man can now see. He can see. But how? Only partially. He can only partially see. It's blurry still before him. Keep this in mind when thinking about the disciples. They see, but they only see partially. But when Jesus lays his hands on the, on the man's eyes again, what happens? His eyes are opened, his sight was restored, and he sees everything clearly. And then Jesus tells him, hey, don't even go back into the town. Don't go back into the village. We'll come back to that in, in a moment. But here's the question. How do you see Jesus? How do you see Jesus? Do you see him like the Pharisees? Like the religious leaders with unbelieving eyes? 
Despite all the evidence of the resurrection, you, you still find yourself in disbelief. If that's you today, I, I pray that you will not harden your hearts any further than they already are to the truths of the gospel. Or, or maybe you're like the disciples and, and you believe in Jesus, you believe in the, in the idea of Jesus, but you're, you're failing to see him for who he really is. You only see him partially, not, not clearly yet. But maybe you, you have a lot of unanswered questions. A lot of questions that are permeating in your mind. Well, keep asking those questions. Keep seeking those answers. But I also want to charge you, I want to challenge you, don't miss the forest for the, for the trees. Don't miss what's right in front of you. Right there. Don't miss the obvious. Or, or, or maybe, by the grace of God, you see Jesus clearly today. And that's completely by the grace of God. <laughs> you see him clearly. But as we look at these questions, we look at these responses, there's not a more important question than this one. Because how we see, how we see Jesus specifically determines how we confess. And that comes to the point of how we answer the question that's being asked in this very next passage. Picking up in verse 27, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea and Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do the people say that I am? And they said, told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. So point number one was we must see Jesus as the Christ. Now here, point number two, we must confess Jesus as the Christ. And what we have here is a conversation between Jesus and the disciples that is, that is taking place. A, a conversation where Jesus is asking them two very direct questions. First is, who do the people say that I am? He's wanting to know, what is the cultural culture saying about me? What is the crowd? What are the people in the crowd? Who are they saying that I am? And they respond back like we heard when the story of Herod. Well, some are saying John the Baptist and others say Elijah. And some say one of the prophets of old. All of these are being very high views of Jesus, right? They have a very high view of Jesus. But all these understandings fail to see Jesus for who he really is. They fail to see the truth. They, they fail to see what's right before their eyes. We see the same exact thing today. People see Jesus as a really great man, as a great prophet, a, a great humanitarian, wonderful guy. Everybody seems to love Christmas time Jesus. Ricky Bobby, baby Jesus, Jesus. They, they, they have no problem with that understanding of, uh, of Jesus. A, a popular culture, Jesus. A best friend, Jesus. It's, that's, it's there for you and he's comforting and it's just a sentimental type of understanding of Jesus. But they fail to see Jesus for who he really is. They fail to see Jesus clearly. And that's when Jesus turns the question to his disciples. So, okay, that, that's what the culture says. But what about you? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, likely responding for them all, says, You're the Christ. You're the Christ. And in that moment, when you read those words, it's like, whoo, finally, they get it. They see the answer. Yes, it's right there before them. And then we're reminded about the blind man. And how did he see? Partially, but not clearly. He saw partially, but not clearly. 
It's kind of like when your child starts babbling for the first time. Like, I remember when Bryant started babbling for the first time. He started saying, dad, 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 you know. And in that moment of time, I'm thinking, I'm not saying it out loud because I don't want to hurt Leslie's feelings. But I'm thinking, he loves me the most. <laughs> he said, dad, 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 dad. And I went, yes. And then we go out in public. And he sees another male. And he, dad, 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 dad. And another male. And dad, 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 dad. And I'm like, really? <laughs> Heart dagger, like right there, twisted. Like I'm, my, my hopes are dashed, and I'm realizing that he only understands partially. He doesn't have a complete understanding. He, he understands that dada is associated with male, but he doesn't quite get it yet. It's kind of what we have here. They understand that Jesus is the Christ. They're right. He is the Christ. But they only see partially. They don't see clearly. Why? Because they have not yet been given the sign of Jonah. They don't understand fully. And that's why Jesus is charging them, hey, don't say anything to anybody. Don't go back into the village, blind man. Don't. You only understand partially, not clearly. They don't understand what it really means for Jesus to be the Messiah. It's the same way for many who claim to believe in him today. But if we don't see Jesus clearly as set forth in Scripture, we cannot confess him rightly. If we do not see Jesus rightly, we cannot confess him correctly, rightly, right? We can't do that. We can have a high view of Jesus, but a high view of Jesus is not enough. We must confess Jesus for who he is. So what does Jesus then do? He says, okay, I'm going to tell you exactly who I am. I'm going to tell you exactly what I've come to do. I'm going to lay it out for you. And he began, verse 31, and he began to teach them that the Son of Man himself must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. So we've seen we must see Jesus as the Christ. We must confess Jesus as the Christ. And now we see we must follow Jesus Christ, the Son of God. So there's a lot here to unpack. We could spend a great deal of time here. But what we can't miss is how Jesus is teaching, how he's teaching the disciples and how he's teaching the crowd here. The notice the word plainly. No more parables, no secrets. He's making it known as plain as possible. Just laying it out. This is what's going to happen. Boom, boom, boom. This is what it means to follow me. Boom, boom, boom. Plainly, which is how we need to see the text as well. 
We don't come to this thinking, well, I wonder what's he saying behind this. I wonder if he really means this. Just this is face value. This is what he's saying. And so he taught the disciples what would happen to him. That's first. This is the first of, of three such occurrences that we're going to see where Jesus does this. Where Jesus says, the Son of Man, again, referring to himself, must suffer many things, be rejected by the religious leaders, be killed, and after three days rise again. So Jesus is saying, plainly, I'm going to suffer, be rejected, I'm going to be killed, and after three days I'm going to rise again. Plain as possible. That's what he's throwing out there. And how does Peter respond? He pulls Jesus aside and he rebukes him. He says, "Uh uh-uh. No, that's not true. That's not what's going to happen to you. You're the Messiah. You're not going to have to suffer. You're not going to be rejected. You're not going to be killed. That's not going to happen. That's not what happens to the Messiah. And why does Peter respond this way? Because he doesn't yet understand what it means for Jesus to be the Christ, to be the Messiah. He believes Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Christ. But again, he sees him as a David-like, a Joshua-like conqueror who is going to free them from the Roman Roman oppression once and for all. He doesn't see suffering. He doesn't see rejection. He doesn't see death anywhere in the equation here for what the Messiah is supposed to look like. Ultimately, he sees a crown without a cross. He sees a crown without a cross as do many professing Christians today. We're going to look at that more in a moment. But, but how, how does Jesus respond here? He responds with a rebuke of his own. He says, get behind me, Satan. Jesus just told Peter, called him Satan. We thought it was bad when he referred to the woman as a Gentile dog, but now he's coming and he's calling Peter Satan here. Talk about harsh, and here, here's why he's doing that. Peter here is opposing the purpose of God and suggesting that Jesus avoid the cross. He's throwing out a temptation like a snake slithering in the garden, suggesting that Jesus avoid the cross. While Jesus came with the intention from the very beginning knowing that the plan of redemption, that the path of glory required suffering and death. See the temptation? The the temptation Peter was setting forth was a kingdom, was a crown without a cross. That's what we see here. It's a false gospel that continues to be preached today. That, that, That we can just follow Jesus and everything will be okay. Follow Jesus and you'll have your best life now. It's a false gospel. See, the disciples believe Jesus is the Christ. There's no question about that. But suffering, that's not on their radar. And this is where the story of the blind man helps us to see the spiritual condition of the disciples. They see partially, but they don't see clearly yet. It won't be until they see the sign of Jonah, the resurrection from the dead, that they will see Jesus clearly for who he really is. The suffering servant. Isaiah 53. They won't see that until the resurrection. But now look what Jesus does next. He calls the crowd to join the conversation. All the crowd, he says, okay, come on in. Come on, join the conversation. And Jesus then taught them what it looks like to be his disciple. Really what you can see this as is Jesus is inviting the crowd. He's inviting them to place their faith in him and to be his disciple. He's saying, okay, come on. 
Be my disciples. You want to follow me? This is what it's going to look like. It's going to cost you everything. It's going to cost you everything to, to follow me. That's what he's laying forth with them. And we see, this isn't easy believism. This isn't, this isn't a get-out-of-hell-free card. That's not what we have here. He says in verse 34, if anyone, anyone referring to the 12, anyone referring to the crowd, any one of us today, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So let's break that down just a little bit further. It says deny himself. The person who desires to follow Christ, if we desire to follow Christ, we must deny ourself. See, the Greek verb here for deny is a strong term, meaning to have no association with or to disown completely, to be done away with, completely removed. The point Jesus is making here is everyone who wishes to follow him is must be willing to disown themselves, abandon their sin, and abandon their desires, and submit their lives completely and totally to the will of Christ. That's what it means to follow Jesus. To abandon, disown our desires, our passions, and to submit ourselves completely to Christ. It's, to call, to, it's a call to value and treasure Jesus more than we value and treasure ourselves, our comforts, and our desires. That's what the call to Christianity is. But then the question is, how? How is that possible? Is it something that we have to just do within ourselves and muster up the gumption to make it happen? No. This is where we have to stop and we look at the implications of belief, implications of the gospel. We believe, like literally believe, all the evidence before us, and we say, we literally believe that Christ died and rose from the grave. What, is, what does that mean for us? Well, what we want to do often is say, okay, I believe that now my eternity is secure. My, my get out of hell free card in a sense. I, I, my eternity is secure. I'm, I was died with Christ, now I'll be the first to, to rise with Christ in the eschaton, in the end times. Okay, eternity there. But we fail to forget the here and now. We fail to forget what has already happened to us. That so have we now risen with Christ in the sense where if we are truly believing Christ, we're no longer who we once were. We're no longer who we once were. We're a new creation we're born again. That's why he's using this very graphic language where he says, new creation, born again. You're no longer the who you once were. We have sanctified eyes. See, when we are justified, when we talked about this a few weeks ago, Christ now sees us. God now sees us because of the work of Christ. Christ, our sin was imputed, appointed to a place upon, associated with Jesus attributed to him, and his what? Righteousness was placed upon us, and now we are justified. We are seen just as if I'd never sinned. Praise God, right? But he doesn't just seal us there and then say, okay, wait till the end time. No, he now begins to sanctify us. And we are sanctified, and we're being sanctified, conformed into the image of Christ. That means that we can now see clearly things that we've never seen before. We see that we, we have sin. So we're reading the Word, we're studying the Word, and we're being convicted by the Word, and we see sins in our life that we never saw before. It wasn't something we struggled with before. It was just a natural part of our life. 
And now we're seeing that it's sin that's keeping us from holiness. And it, we're having to d- deny ourselves of that. We're, we're seeing said activities in our life, whatever those activities may be, that are keeping us from pursuing holiness. And we're having to d- deny ourselves of those things. How? By relying upon the Holy Spirit, the gift that we have been given, giving evidence of the righteousness of Christ that is in our lives. And we do what? We deny ourselves, disown ourselves from these things in our lives, and we take up our cross. Take up our cross. It's not a, not a, a pretty little piece of jewelry. This, this is an, an electric chair. Take up your electric chair. Take up your noose. Take up your instrument of torture. See, what Jesus is saying here is to anyone who wishes to follow him, anyone who wishes to follow him, is that the road of discipleship isn't a road of prosperity and ease. It's a road marked with suffering, with rejection, and even martyrdom. This is what it means to follow Christ. Now, clearly, not every believer will die a martyr. Praise God for that. But I actually had a guy in seminary once tell me, I may have shared this with you before, he told me, asking, hey, what do you feel called to do? He said, I, I feel called to be a martyr. <laughs> and I'm like, I didn't know what, how to respond to that. And I was like, well, good luck with that. <laughs> well, I mean, have, have fun, go out. You know, I'm like, what do you do with that? Not every believer is going to die a martyr, and neither should it be something that we strive after. But every, every faithful follower of Christ is to love Jesus so fully that even death is not too high a price for eternal joy. That's how we love. So, so to take up one's cross here is a, is a metaphor for being willing to pay any price for the glorious gift of life that Christ bestows. Anything. We, for Mark's original audience, those who would have been reading this for the first time, you know what they were doing? They were suffering under the persecution of Roman Emperor Nero. It would not have been uncommon. It was very much the practice. It was happening to their friends. It was happening to their family. That they were lined in the streets with crosses and crucifixions. People were being lit up in the, in, in the emperor's garden as candles in the night to light up the way. They knew firsthand what suffering was for following Christ. And see, true conversion, it changes how we define and how we see true treasure. It changes how we see. And when the parable of the soil and the seed, when we think back to it, it reminds us that there will be many who receive the word with joy. They may even bear evidence for a while. Go on mission trips and work in the church and serve in various ways. But when trials come, when that rocky soil begins to have way, when the thorns begin to come up away, they wither away and they're gone. They're no longer to be seen. But those who endure, those who continue to persevere through suffering and hardship for the honor of Christ, they prove the genuineness of their faith because they continue to follow Him. They deny themselves. They, they, they pick up the cross and they follow Jesus. As we see Jesus is saying here with follow me, true discipleship requires loyal and continual obedience to Him. Just looking at the words of Jesus here. Jesus' his, his sheep hear his voice and they follow him. Those who love Jesus obey his commandments. 
Those who live in obedience to Christ demonstrate the evidence that they are truly His disciples. No obedience, no evidence of salvation. Thus, those who persist in unrepentant sin give evidence that they don't truly belong to Christ. It's name only. They perceive, but only partially, not clearly. They don't understand. Now, I want to be clear here. Denying oneself, taking up one's cross, following after Jesus in obedience are not works that save us. These things do nothing to help us earn our salvation. We are saved by by grace through faith in Christ alone. That's it. We do nothing to earn our salvation. But what Jesus is doing here, what he's saying here, is he's describing characteristics of repentant faith and a new birth. He's describing what someone's life is to look like if they've received God's gift of salvation. That's what he's doing. He's saying, this is what it's supposed to look like. This is what Christianity is. This is what discipleship is. See, those God saves, he transforms. He gives us eyes to see the glorious treasure of Christ. He gives us hearts and desires to behold him, to behold his glory above all else. And that's what we see in Jesus' paradoxical addendum here in verse 35. He says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Church, there there is no safe and comfortable Christianity. It, It does not exist in the confines of the Bible. The idea itself is is a work of Satan designed to blind people from faithfully following Christ. It's a false gospel. That's exactly what it is. It's a false gospel like the one Peter was tempting Jesus with. That there could be a possibility of having a crown without a cross. Oh, you will have such a better life. Just pray this prayer and your life will be better, more comfortable, no problems, no suffering. Just have faith. Things are going hard. Just have more faith. It'll be better for you. Pray this prayer and everything will be okay. But Jesus promises no such thing. It's nowhere found in Scripture. What Jesus promises is that in risking it all for Christ, which when you stop and think about that, it sounds foolishness in and of sense. How, how can we risk it all when it's all His anyway? It, when we risk it all, it leads to a reward this world can never begin to offer. This world's holding out fool's gold, and we're buying it. <laughs> it's in the, it's real, live, give it all, give everything to follow Christ, and you gain everything. Not in this earth, but in the world to come. Lose everything in our attempts to obtain the riches. We lose everything in our attention, our attempts to raise, to obtain the, the pleasures of this world. When we're seeking after the things of this world, when we're chasing after the fool's gold that it offers, ultimately we will lose everything, even if the world says you're successful. We will lose it all. And why is this so hard for us to see? 
I'm talking to us who are Christians. <laughs> Why is it so hard for us, all of us, to see? Plain and simple, what he's saying, again, just plainly laying it forth. If we're ashamed of Christ in his words, unwilling to deny ourselves, unwilling to pick up our cross, unwilling to follow Christ, in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, the Son of Man, also will be ashamed when it comes to the final judgment. But again, don't miss the forest for the trees. We don't deny ourselves. We don't pick up our cross. We don't follow Jesus by focusing on these things. They're not the treasure. They're the fruit. They're not the treasure. They're the fruit. We focus on Jesus, exclusively upon Jesus. We see Him clearly for who He is by the grace of God, what He's done, and we know with certainty that He's the treasure we're selling everything to obtain. He's the pearl of great price that we'll give everything to have. He is the one that's worth all the suffering that this world may bring. And we follow. Let's bring that just a little bit closer to home. None of us in this room got married thinking I'm looking to deny myself. <laughs> yeah, that's what I want. I want to get married so I can deny myself and have trials and have difficulty. Yeah, that's what I want in my life. <laughs> that's what I want. No, what happens? We saw our spouse. We saw them. We said the very first time was like, we might not have said it out loud, but we said, wow, behold the beauty. <laughs> Now, if you did say it out loud, that would be really awkward. <laughs> We'd love to hear that story. <laughs> but you say, wow, behold the beauty. In my case, I, I saw Leslie for the very first time in gym class. And if you know her at all, and you can just see how funny that is that we met in, in gym class. But I saw her and I said, I, I, I desire her above any woman I've ever seen in my life. And the more that I got to know her, the more that desire grew. And eventually, we said, I do. For better or worse, until death do us part. But what comes with marriage? It's just easy peasy all the time, right? No problems, right? What comes with it? Self-denial. Difficulty. Trials. It happens. But the longer I'm with Leslie, the more I love her the more I behold her as my bride, the more I'm committed with effortlessly, even though it's hard. It's not effortlessly. There's effort there because when sinners say, I do, there's an issue there. But we continue to, to grow and to love one another and to pursue one another, to deny. I will deny myself for her without question. Though there's sometimes where my sin steps in the way and that's harder than others. <laughs> I will suffer for her without question because I love her. Because I see her as my bride. Yet the love she has for me and the love that I have for her, it's not even a fraction of the love that Christ has for his church. Not even a fraction. So, so don't miss the forest for the trees this morning, church. Don't miss the forest. Don't miss what's right in front of your face. 
See and behold the glory of the suffering servant who was rejected and killed for you. See him as the risen Savior who the death, who the grave could not hold. (laughs) Believe in Him. Treasure Him. Follow Him. I'm telling you, it's worth it. Give your whole life, everything on the table. It's all His. Give it to Him. Follow Him. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow Him. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, thank you for the gift of sight, spiritual sight, for the ability to to see and to know your son, Jesus. Your grace is is a gift beyond measure. Your, Your love incomprehensible. And for we who have been blessed with the ability to see clearly, Lord, give us the strength to deny ourselves like daily, hourly, I mean really moment by moment to pick up our cross and to follow you. And for those who who may only see partially, things are still fuzzy there, Lord, I pray that their questions will lead them to the truth. I pray that they won't miss the forest for the trees. For those who can't see, despite all the evidence that they continue to, to see, they're in unbelief, Lord, give them eyes to see and to know you clearly today. To faithfully follow you wherever you lead, Lord. Help us all to follow you wherever you lead. And again, we say thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and let's sing thank you together and through this song.